Well, good morning, everybody. Y'all glad to be here? Say amen. Yeah. Hey, it's great to see you at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. So let me welcome you into the assembly. Y'all sure do look good out there. Anyway, hey, listen, I hope you've had a good week. I need to just kind of celebrate a little bit this morning. Let me do that. And so let me, let me just say that for us in the assembly, hey, it's been a pretty quiet summer. You know, not a lot of extracurricular activities have gone on in the assembly, but man, your church has been really, really busy. And so Kevin and his leadership group, they took a group of students to North Carolina Snowbird Camp this year. And anyway, they had about 40 that, that went and took part in that. Just a great, great week. Then last week, uh, the, your media guy, I'm going to say your seminarian, Hayden Parkinson, he took a group to uh, Lake Teocata this past week. I think about 65 students. And anyway, they had a, a great week as well with several students coming to faith in Christ. And anyway, that was really good. Then I look out and I see Matt Gates. And he shared, uh, you know, what the Lord has done in his life with the men at the home of grace last night. And so, you know, hey, I think, Matt, how, how, many, how many years? Uh, have you been serving the Lord and telling your story? About six years. All right. So anyway, you know, he was able to minister to those guys last night. Yeah. And then Robin Joyner has spent the last week or 10 days or something like that at Palmer Creek Methodist Campground. She has led a group of students there. And, you know, from what I hear and understand, there have been several that have come to faith in Christ through that ministry as well. And the remodel at Temple Baptist Church has been going amazing. You guys have had a team of men over there for about three months working on that, and it's coming close to completion. Anyway, there's been a lot going on, lots of ministry happening. And this week, there will be a group of little students. So I'm going to say, Trey, did he leave? He didn't want to hear the message twice. Okay. Anyway, Jennifer is going to take a group of younger students. I don't know, maybe like the first grade and year seven through 12, seven-year-old through 12-year-old. And so they're going to go to Lake Forest Camp, I think is the name of it. And they're going to spend, they're going to spend about a week as well. So lots of student ministry is happening, taking place around. And, and then, hey, today what the assembly is all about is God's people getting together. We celebrate Jesus and what he's done. This is a time of encouragement and blessing and instruction. So I'm going to really kind of dive in. I'm going to preach to myself today, and so you guys are off the hook completely. But before I do that, there, I mean, I want to I just give God some glory. I do. I want to give God some praise in the house. So I challenged you guys, Harvest Church, about two years ago um, to pick one. Choose one. Who's your one? Take, you know, take that person that God has laid on your heart and love them, pray for them, encourage them as God gives you opportunity to speak life and share the gospel with them. And so anyway, I, I have one. I have one. I, I still have one. But Eddie Boykin is my brother-in-law. Of course, Janice and I have been married for 33 years, so 
you know, we've had a long relationship, and Eddie is a really hard guy on the exterior. I mean, he's, he's a tough guy, and not, you know, not necessarily uh, the easiest guy to get along with. I hope he's not watching, but anyway, I love you, man. I mean, really. I mean, he, he is a great guy. Let me, ju- let me just say that. I have a, you know, a ton of res- respect for him, and I, I love him. He's my brother. And so anyway, he, he, was, he was on my heart. When I introduced that to everybody else, he was my one. So, you know, God, you know, God just impressed upon me, hey, lead him to faith in Christ. And so, you know, Janice and I prayed for him and, and, and would do different things at different times to just encourage him. According to, to him, you did it in a gentlemanly way and, you know, just encourage me and the Lord. Janice would, you know oftentimes invite him to church and that kind of thing and so anyway hey he's he's my one and I told you guys when we had you know something happen with our one we're going to celebrate up in the house well I was at Lake Teocata with with Suge and the in the group there and it was Wednesday afternoon and I was just ready to get me a nap in the in the in the room and my phone rings and Janice is on the other line and she says Eddie is in the hospital, and he's asking for you. And so I said, okay, let me make sure everything is okay. And if it is, then I'll, I'll head down that way. So I left Lake Teocata, I think somewhere around 2 o'clock in the afternoon, drove to Memorial Hospital in Gulfport and got to his room about 6 or 6.30. So I walk in, and I try to wake him up, and he's, he's not waking up. And so I just find a chair next to him and hey I just start to you know I just start to start talk to the Lord and and just kind of waiting in the quietness and I don't know maybe a 30 minutes or an hour later the nurse comes in and he turns on all the lights and brings food and and starts to wake him up and bring him around and that kind of thing and anyway after the nurse finishes with with his details and duties then I pull my chair up next to Eddie and and uh and he begins the conversation, I'm ready to get things right with the Lord. Yeah, yeah. And so for about the next 15 or 20 minutes, I just listened to Eddie pour his heart out and, you know, share with me what's going on in his, in his heart. And, and I get to lead him to faith in Christ. I get to pray with him as he prays to receive Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And, and then, you know, he begins to talk about our journey together. And he says, you know, I've been to church with you guys a handful of times, you know, for special days and that kind of thing. And he said, he said, you know, every time I would go, I would just cry. He said, and I, w- and I was ashamed and I didn't, you know, I didn't want to go. And I said, hey, listen, man, it's, it's, it's okay. Hey, no big deal. Today is, is the day. Today is a, is a good day. He said, you know, I wish I would have done this years, years ago. He said, I should have done, done this years ago. And I said, man, it's okay. It's a good day. Today is a brand new day. It's a brand new beginning. And so anyway, hey, listen, it was glory. It was glorious for me to see my brother-in-law, my one come to faith in Christ, and I, hey, I give God all, all the glory, and even, you know, hey, even in this time, I, I'm looking forward to see what God does in and, and through his life, 
It's, it's been my privilege to lead lots of people to faith in Christ toward the end of their journey. And it's always a sweet thing to know that God's grace is enough and it's present, you know, in that day. And I'll always say, the sooner the better. Don't wait because you don't know what, what the next day is or the next day is or how many days you have. But just know, hey, God, God is gracious all the way to the end. If you have one that you've been reaching out to and praying for and all that for lots of time and, and you're discouraged, maybe think it's not going anywhere, every seed you plant is effective. Every encouragement you give matters. You know, every part of that journey, it's very rare that you just meet somebody, present them with the gospel, and they get saved on the spot. That's really, really rare. It's the investment of loving somebody enough to, to love them to Christ. Anyway, I just wanted to give God some praise up in the house. So I do that. Yep. God is good. He saves. And he can save you today. That's the good news. Stand to your feet. Come on. Framework for the family. This series where we are looking at the book of 1 Timothy, finding parameters for life and ministry as a faith family. 1 Timothy chapter 3 begins this conversation of leadership in the New Testament church. There is this introduction of two offices in the local church. The first that is mentioned is that of a bishop, and we'll talk about that terminology and the expectation of that office as we go through the message today. I want to put a question in your heart and mind as this conversation begins. And that question is this. Hey, what should I expect from my pastor? What should I expect from my pastor? As I looked into the text, I just had to say, what does God expect from his pastor? What does God expect of the, of the man or, or men who are placed in roles of leadership as they minister to the people of God? Hey, what is God's expectation? And so that's what we find as an outline in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. The Bible says this is a faithful saying or a trustworthy saying. If a man desires the position or the office of a bishop, he desires a good work, not a lazy man's work. It's a work. A bishop then must be these terms, these qualities, blameless, the husband of one wife, I can't imagine anybody wanting more than that. Amen? Glad I got one, a good one. Temperate, sober-minded, of a good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. One who rules his own house well. There again, the idea is order, organization. One who operates and runs or rules his house well. Having his children in all submission, which is the greatest challenge for any pa pastor. Preacher's kids are always the worst. 
with reverence. For if a man doesn't know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. May God bless the reading of his word. Father, bless your people. Challenge us, encourage us together as we gather around this text and think about your expectation for order in the assembly leadership of the church that you purchased with the sweet blood of Christ. Lord, I pray that not only would you challenge me as you have all week long in preparation for today, but Lord, that you would challenge this, this people to think clearly about those whom they choose as leaders in this New Testament context. Speak to our hearts in Christ's name. Amen. As you see to this morning, let me just, you know, let, let, me, let me make some introductory statements to, you know, just kind of guide our conversation and help you understand that in the work of the ministry, this New Testament church life, that we live together, that there is no system of hierarchy given to us in the Word of God as it has to do with you and I as believers in Christ. The Bible declares to us that, that we are, are equals, that we are fellow heirs with the Lord Jesus, that we are co-laborers together. And so in the Word of God, there is no such thing as those who have superiority or domination over others. There is very simply laid out for us structure so that there's order in the New Testament uh, life of the church. There is, you know, as one writer said, there is leadership so that there won't be chaos. Anything without you know, proper order always tends to chaos. And so God has loved us enough to, to place in our context or the context of the New Testament church offices that bring order instead of chaos. Um, you know, hey, here, here is the truth. This, this text, you know, quite honestly, if, if, if I don't say anything that reverberates well to you, this this text in the study and preparation of it has largely been reflective. It's, it's really a time where your pastor has been forced to look introspectively and to see myself in, in you know, the truth of flawed reality and then to feel the weight of the expectation that God has given for those that lead his church. And so in a very real way, this is personal challenge for myself, but in another way, this is absolutely necessary for you guys as a church. Let's just take, for example, the, the need at some point for you as a congregation to choose or call another pastor. And so there's going to need to be among the assembly an informing of what should be expected of someone who will lead this congregation. 
maybe even more so than that, if God wills, and I pray that he does, that this assembly has the privilege of watching men come to faith in Christ, watching God do a a supernatural work in their heart, then call them into the gospel ministry where the church will come alongside and disciple them and then ultimately send them to plant another New Testament church, hopefully somewhere along this coastal region. Part of your pastor's desire is to see God do that multiple times during during my lifetime. So it's, it's good for, for you to be challenged by these ideals as well. I'll just say this to you also. Know this, that as, that as I read through these expectations, I feel the weight of it. I feel the gravity of it. I see, uh, I see my weakness. Can I say to you that as I read through this, you weigh yourself as well. Hey, you think about these expectations. Listen, God has set a, 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 a standard that is, that is high. The expectation that he has for his children to walk in godliness and live in holiness, you know, it doesn't just fall to that of the leader. Certainly, the example of the leader sets the, the tone, but just know, hey, listen, what is the expectation that God has for your life as well I'm going to process through this text. I really want to begin with just a look at this idea of the office of leadership. David Jeremiah posed this question. He says, hey, why does the church need leadership? After all, we're we're all on common ground before the Lord. We're all equals and co-heirs of Jesus Christ. And then he answers his own question and he says, because assembly without leadership leads to chaos And you know that most of these New Testament epistles are written so that there is order and not dysfunction. The term bishop, for those of you, as we think about this office of bishop, for those of you who have a Catholic background or maybe a Methodist background either, the the term bishop can take your mind to a place where it thinks of this denominational structure where there is a hierarchy in a diocese, where there is, you know, one up here, and then there's different levels and archbishops and all that kind of thing. And so it can lead our minds to to think about this hierarchy or or structure that is denominationally built. But I want to say to you, you know, real honest, y'all look at me for a minute. The structure in the New Testament first century church is very simple. I mean, you have to understand that the church has only been implemented for about 30 years at the writing of this text. I mean, there's not a lot of, you know, hierarchy and a lot of offices. There are some very simple structure laid down for the local New Testament church. There's only two uh, positions that are mentioned in this context, and that is that of a bishop and a pastor. And so you're going to hear three different terms that really describe the same office in this message, that of a bishop, that of a that of an elder, and that of a pastor. You can find that language at different places throughout the New Testament as it speaks to the life of the local church, and yet they all describe the same office. And so when you think about 
a bishop, it's okay to think about that as the pastor. Or if you think of the idea of elder, it all speaks of the same office. Everybody got it? Say, I got it. And so, you know, don't get bogged down necessarily with terms. The three Greek New Testament terms are presbyteros, episcopos, and poimain. And that really means nothing to you other than just know that those are terms that describe this office of pastor. And then they help us understand its function. So the text is is going to give the reader detailed instructions of what God expects and what the church should expect from church leaders. The work of preaching, according to one writer, he says, the work of preaching and leading the church, which our Lord purchased with his own blood, is the highest and greatest and most glorious calling to which anyone could ever be called. Another writer writes this, everything rises or falls with leadership, whether it be a family or whether it be a local church. Even though the church is an organism, it must be organized or it will die. Lack of leadership leads to chaos. And so we look at this idea of the office of pastor. And the first thing that I'll, you know, that I'll say about this office of pastor is that it's ordained by God. I mean, we have, we have looked at, at this text, this passage in 1 Timothy, and we've looked at it as a, as a way to build structure, framework for the family so that we function well for generations to come. And into this discussion comes this idea that God has ordained, that God has placed leadership in the assembly, as Ephesians 4 would say, as a gift to the church. So you might not have known it when you came in here, but I'm God's gift to you. Y'all responded very well to that. Thank you. It's, it's this idea that leadership is it's, it's ordained by God. We, we watch it begin to happen in Acts chapter 11. And in simplistic fashion, you know, even in Acts chapter 6, there is this process where men are chosen out. Anyway, hey, this office is ordained by God, and it's to be honored. Un- understand, God's, God's structure is a blessing to his people. But not only is this office ordained by God, but it's also ordained by the church. Ordination, we, we, be, you know, we begin to see some scholars would say in Acts chapter 6, certainly by Acts chapter 13, where there is a laying on of hands. Brother Clell, you experienced that as a pastor for many years, a laying on of hands of the brethren, recognizing and coming alongside of you and, you know, given authority to go and to... And to do the ministry that God has called you to do. Eddie, you, you know, you've experienced the, the same kind of thing. But here's what I want to say to you, church. What if? Let's just say what if. Somebody walks in the door this morning, opens the front door, walks down to the front, turns around, and says to you, I'm your new pastor. How do you respond to that? They walk in. They walk down to the front. They say, God spoke to my heart this morning. He spoke it, he spoke it clear that I'm your new pastor. 
So what do you do with that? Here's what you do. You bum rush him. Yeah. Hey, go, go redneck. Do it. Why? Why? Because the church gives the ordination. It's the church who, who gives authority to rule. No dictatorship where somebody walks in and starts to dictate to this assembly who are you, you know, who you are to be. I mean, ultimately, what we say first and primarily is that we have one authority, and his name is not Brother Brian. It's Jesus. And so we, we look to him. So you guys as a church then see the giftedness of a God-called pastor, and you give him authority to minister in the lives of others. Spiritual oversight begins with divine call. Men driven by an inner passion actively seek to serve the church. The congregation either affirms or rejects that calling based on how the man's life measures up to the standards the Holy Spirit has delineated. And so not only does God call him, the church qualifies him and ordains him. They see the giftedness in him and then qualify him for that office. So it's a God call and it's a church sent type of ministry. The office of a pastor is not only ordained, but it's desired. If a man desire the office of a bishop, then he desires a good work. And so let's talk about that desire because here's the reality. Anybody who reads these expectations in his, hey, in his humanity, he, he sees the weight of what the expectation is. This desire means to stretch forth. It means to stretch oneself, to reach out after, knowing that, you know, a person who just desires the office, that's a beginning point. But if God doesn't energize, if God doesn't equip him and give him the unction to do the ministry, it's going to fall flat and it's not going to be productive or glorify anybody. That's the truth of the matter. God's got to touch it. Adrian Rogers said that a call to preach is a call to prepare. And so we look at this desire and we say, if a man is called by God, and, and you know, I don't know how you think about this, and I really kind of hesitate to, to share. I can say that I've counseled with numerous men who have come to me and said, hey, listen, I feel like God is calling me into the ministry. Had lots of conversations that way. On the front side of my ministry, there was lots of conversations that I had with older men asking the older men of God, how do you know for sure that God is calling you? How do you know? How do you confirm that call in your life? And I've just got to, you know, maybe sum up this statement by, by saying not only will God make it crystal clear in your own heart, but he'll make it crystal clear to others around you as well. And it's God calling and then others confirming that call in your life. And so it's, it's not an, a, an occupation where all of a sudden a person can just say, well, things are not going well at my other job. I think I'll change career paths 
You know, it looks like it's pretty easy to be the pastor. You work two days a week. You, you know, everybody loves you. It's an easy gravy deal. You know, I just change. It's not that way. And it's not something that your mom speaks into your life and says, you know, your granddaddy was a pastor, so why don't you try that out? It does not work that way. It's a divine call where God puts a passion in the heart of a man to not lord over his people, but to serve his, his church, serve his church. If a man is called, then he will find it necessary to prepare himself for that which God has called him to. My call to ministry was in 1999. I surrendered to, to, to ministry January the 26th, 1999. It was a Sunday morning. I made that public not only to my pastor who I had counseled with many times up to that point, but I made it public to the church as well. And the, the response that I got from my pastor is this, well, God called you to preach. He gave you a word. You're preaching tonight. And I like to fell out. <laughs> and so I preached about five minutes that Sunday night, cried through all of that. And anyway. Yeah, Brother Clay, that brings back a lot of memories, doesn't it? It does. But there was enough wisdom around me that, that pushed me, even though a circle around me was, was saying, hey, if God called you, that's all you need. You don't need a, an education and all that. There was enough wisdom around me that said a call to preach is a call to prepare. And anyway, if you're going to do anything, do it well, prepare well. For the long haul. This text is unique in that it does not speak to giftedness. It does not speak loudly even to function. But what it screams is integrity. It really speaks to the character of the man that God has called. Sixteen characteristics are given in this text that speak to the role and character of the pastor. It's a massive and weighty list that makes, hey, it makes any human, especially this pastor, take personal inventory and tremble at the expectation that God has for those that do this office. Here's a quote. I think it's from Phillips. He says, the most important qualities leaders can demonstrate are not intelligence, a forceful personality, glibness, diligence, vision, administrative skills, decisiveness, courage, humor, tact, or any other similar natural attribute. Those all play a part, but the most desirable quality for any leader is integrity. In almost every other functional office in our culture, that's not the case. You can be the president of the United States have achievement and education and the backing of political party and have the morals of an alley cat and still get the job. That's not the case with your pastor. The message and the man, the integrity and the character, they weigh one another. If there is no character, then there is no weight to the message. You don't divorce the two. Here's, here's how one writer says it. The messenger and the message are directly connected. 
they must be one and the same. A man cannot only preach, he must live. Another writer says, what a man is cannot be divorced from what he says. And so the office of the pastor, it carries that kind of weight. Can I just say to you, I mean, this is true in your reputation in life and it's true in mine. A lifetime of building up, gaining respect, and functioning well can be ruined in one cross word, in one bad decision. I mean, the weight of that. No, your pastor is not a perfect man by any means. You want to know how to pray for those around you in leadership? Man, pray that God cover and give wisdom. 16 things, blameless. Anybody in the house blameless? Isn't that, that's an overarching word. It, it's like an umbrella. And it literally means above reproach, someone to be above reproach. There's not a one of us in here who's not had an accusation hurled your way. And so the language is like this, is that of a courtroom setting. If you were to be placed on trial, then to be blameless is to be exonerated. There's not enough evidence to make the charge stick. The idea is to be above reproach, to not necessarily you know, not have an accusation. Anybody in leadership is going to have enough of that. But not that it has enough weight to stick. The second is the husband of, of one wife. So the pastor, the leader, is to be exemplary in his family life, his home life. In fact, the text will speak more to that. But it's this idea that the pastor is faithful to his wife, that he has a love for her that not only is evident in the assembly while we're all together, but it's also evident at home behind closed doors. The man who's a heathen in his house can't rule the house of the Lord. The text, you know, hey, this is always the, the one qualification that kind of gets raised up to the top. Well, what is he talking about? Is he talking about divorce? Is he talking about you know, um, polygamy. And you, you can answer the polygamy, you know, really right off the bat. I mean, polygamy was not the norm in the first century. Not only that, polygamy was not tolerated in the New Testament church. First Corinthians specifically speaks against anybody having more than one wife. How in the world do you want more than one? I mean, I, you, I, mean, I love mine. I mean, yeah, thank you. I mean, what a blessing. And it doesn't necessarily speak to the fact that a man who would be your pastor has to have a wife. But if he has one, he needs to be faithful to her. He needs to be literally, in the Greek, a one-woman man, a devoted husband who loves his wife. He is to be vigilant. That is temperate. One who keeps his head in all situations. He exercises sober and sensible judgment in all things. He's to be sober. That is serious in his attitude and earnest in his work. He is to be of good behavior. The, the idea is, is order. Last week I spoke to the women and the word was modesty. It's the same word. It has the idea 
of an orderly life, not out of whack and, and extreme. He's a man who is given to hospitality. That is, he is a lover of strangers, one who is willing to open up his home and, and to love, love people. He is to be able to teach. In this passage, this is the, this is the ministry that's highlighted. Teaching is the elder's main ministry. Many scholars believe that the pastor and teacher mentioned in Ephesians 4 refers to one person but two functions. In other words, pastors who is the shepherd and then he is the instructor, the teacher as well. The pastor is not to be given to wine. That is, he is not a person that drinks to excess as a drunkard. Lots of debate about that. We had lots of open discussion about wine in this assembly. We talked about it. I didn't know there were so many drunkards in the Baptist church. But anyway, we talked about that at length. And, you know, the summation of the statement is, hey, drunkenness is always out of line for anybody. And, hey, to tarry at the wine is, is not wise. For the pastor, it's not good. Don't be a striker. That is a person who is a, con a contentious person, one looking for a fight. You ever knew any Baptists like that? Pastors like that? Don't be greedy. Be patient. That is gentle. The pastor must listen to people and be able to take criticism without reacting. I wrote that down for myself as a reminder. Not a brawler. Pastor must be a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. Not covetous. Traps for your pastor could include money and popularity and a large ministry and fame and denominational advancement and the list goes on. But the aspiration of the pastor is to love God's people. A good family. Here is a lesson valuably learned and that is family ministry is priority ministry in 2018. I felt the weight of the, the tendency to give my life away to everybody else, to the neglect of my home. It's easy for me to run to the hospital and minister to the needs of everybody else, to the neglect of my own family. In this text, there is a drawing back in that reminds every pastor that family ministry is priority ministry. The reality that the family, the home, is the proving ground. If a man doesn't know how to lead well at home, how can he lead well in the church of God? It's a proving ground. Not a novice. That term simply means not one who has been newly planted. So, Benny, if you get saved today and you come to Bible study on Wednesday night, next Sunday you can't be the pastor. I mean, you, you got gray hair. Which is the sign of an elder, but a, a novice is someone who is, who is spiritually mature in the faith. A novice is not, not that person. A novice is a newly planted believer. He should have a good testimony with those outside the church. Here is a statement that I wrote for myself. No pastor ever feels that he is all that he ought to be. Would you pray for him? That he'll be all that God has called him to be. So what about the work of the pastor? Hey, what should I expect 
from my pastor. Here is this, this list of things that God, who has purchased the church, the expectations that he has for those that would lead. And so what does his work look like? What does the work of your pastor look like? I mean, you get to see a, a reflection of that on Sunday morning as you know, study has happened throughout the week and that kind of thing. But let, let me just kind of, let me give you a couple things that, that you can think about. The teaching role of the pastor is emphasized in this text. I found this helpful. Listen to this quote. The ability to teach the word like all other skills is not acquired overnight. The Bible is a library of books, 66 in total takes years of diligent study to acquire a thorough working knowledge of its contents and to become familiar with sound hermeneutical principles, that is, interpretation skills. A teacher must understand the Bible's broad movements, meet its many people, master its major doctrines, apply its vital principles, weigh its geography, its history, its cultures, its themes, think about the language in which it was written, study its structure, attend to the context of any given verse, and then compare various passages. You say, Pastor, how long have you been a student? How long does it take to prepare a sermon? I get that question a lot. How long does it take to prepare a sermon? And I heard uh, Johnny Hunt say this, this, this one time in response to that, it takes a lifetime. I mean, that's the honest question. You're, as a pastor, I approach every text with the last, you know, let's just say 25 years of study. Every week, there is at least a day of preparation where, you know, the majority of that day is spent just pouring over the text and, and preparing. It takes a lifetime to build a sermon. Here is more than that. I mean, hey, listen, let's just get really honest. How many of y'all ever heard a bad sermon? How many of y'all think this is a bad sermon? I'll do better next week. I, I mean, listen, it's, it's one thing for a person to convey knowledge and to study and, you know, teach you biblical theology on a Sunday morning. And here is a goal as your pastor. I'll just be up front with you. Every time we get together in this kind of setting, I want you to learn something. I want you to be challenged about something. I want something to spark your attention. And I want you to grow from our experience of spending an hour together on Sunday. I want you to celebrate and let's raise the roof. But I want you to learn and be challenged in your knowledge as well. But here's the truth about it. I mean, any man can prepare and study for a week, and then stand up and give you an oral presentation. But there's something special when the anointing of the Spirit of God is upon the man of God who is prepared to preach the Word of God that not only satisfies your intellect, but it stirs your soul because it's been ignited by the Spirit of God. And that is, that's, that's God-given not only is your pastor to be a teacher inspired by the Word of God and the Spirit of God, but he is to be a shepherd as well. I don't know how you think about, you know, what the pastor should be. Everybody has an idea of what the pastor should be. And I've, I've, I've had a list of, I mean, people that I've gotten to pastor for a long time and I've had, you know, a list of people that have 
been disenchanted because the pastor failed to fulfill an expectation. So what does this shepherd look like? Here is, here is a quote from Phillips. He says, the pastor should lead his flock as an eastern shepherd leads his sheep. He doesn't drive his flock or herd it with dogs. On the contrary, he establishes a friendly relationship with the, with the sheep that are committed to his care. He knows them by name. He helps them over difficult places, guides them into green pastures and besides still waters. He tends to their hurts, cares for their little ones, and defends them from their enemies. If the shepherd fights, he fights the wolves, not the sheep. So not only is your pastor to be a teacher, he is to be a shepherd, and he is to be an example to the flock. And the last thing that I'll say is that is that of the reputation of the pastor. So you see the office of the pastor, you see the character of the pastor, and now you see uh, the reputation of the pastor right after the work of the pastor. So here's a statement for, for myself. What do those outside the church say about the leadership in the church? The greatest reflection on the church to a lost world is the reputation of its leadership. It's, it's synonymous normally. Where do you go to church? Harvest Church. Who's your pastor? And it goes together. Poor reflection um, hinders the work of the ministry. Can I interject a thought? Um, be gracious when you speak of your pastor in open, public settings or around your dinner table. It, it matters. It, it gives weight to the ministry or takes away. Sometimes the remarks can be qualified, sometimes not. If there's a complaint, talk to your, talk to your pastor. If there's a praise, then mention it in the streets. Conclusion. Your pastor's challenge to his core in the study of the text. These expectations are set forth by God. He is serious about those who are entrusted with leadership in his church. In turn, the church has every right to expect a high standard of those who lead. So my prayer is that God would call out godly qualified men from this assembly maybe today or certainly in years to come to lead churches along the Mississippi Gulf Coast for the glory of Christ what should I expect from my pastor you can take your list from his and know that it's pretty sobering let's stand to your feet come on I'm glad that one's over. I'm preaching to somebody else next week.
Yeah, I'm talking to the deacons next week. We don't have any. Okay, let's let's talk about that. I mean, just kind of in way of, of invitation. Let's let's think about that as we kind of wrap up. I mean, you guys are having the privilege to read ahead and study ahead of your path. You know where we're going next week and the next week as we build this structure. And so, John, we, we have deacons in the assembly. You're an ordained man. I know Kevin is, and I don't know who else is, but there's many that I look and see, you know, have been set aside by the church. In this assembly, we haven't formalized that conversation. Although that is right around the corner for us where we have a group of leaders, men who serve the church well. Here's the truth. I mean, we are at a place where we're forming as a body of believers and, you know, building strong relationships and foundations. And and as the church grows, there's need for men who come alongside and women who come alongside and serve in ministry and loving people well, making sure that they're not neglected and all that stuff. So that'll be the conversation as we talk about the servant, his office and so forth. Servant leadership, I worked for Sam's for almost 12 years. I started when we opened the one on Creosote Road, 1988, September. I went to work for Sam's Club. And so I was part of the crew that put up the shelves and all that and got ready for grand opening. And my first real job was stocking detergent overnight. My sinuses still don't work right because of that. <laughs> and anyway, was able to work my way up into management position and and they would talk about this idea of servant leadership and I would think to myself you know hey how revolutionary and the fact is that Jesus introduced that a couple thousand years ago so he who would lead is to be servant of all anyway that's another sermon here's how we'll end today we're going to sing together you guys have heard about the saving grace of my one, Eddie Boykin. I celebrate what God has done in his life. His, you know, his word to me is, I should have done that years ago. I should have done that years ago. Listen, I don't know how long maybe God's been drawing you and talking to your heart about that issue. But why in the world would you wait till tomorrow? What would keep you from being saved today? If that's a decision that needs to happen, hey, let, let today be that day, a new, new beginning. If you have questions about, hey, how can I be part of Harvest Church? God is leading me here and that kind of thing. August, the first Sunday in August, we'll have lunch together in the fellowship hall. And, and I'll talk to you about everything you might, you know, need to know about Harvest Church and how to be a part of that. And if... Maybe you're here today, you just need some help. Need somebody to pray with you, for you, that kind of thing. As we sing, hey, you just respond. Whatever God puts in your heart, you do it. If I can help you, I'm going to wait down here for you. Let's sing together. Come on. 
created me.